beginning and uh, thrilled uh, that you've come along this morning, especially if you're with us for the first time. We welcome you warmly in the name of Christ, and I'd love to meet you after the service, uh, either down front here or maybe in the fellowship hall. Uh, please seek me out and introduce yourself uh, to me. Well, we enter into the Advent season on this uh, first Sunday of Advent, and we are looking in uh, Matthew chapter 2 on these uh, Sunday mornings leading up to Christmas. This morning we'll be in the first 12 verses, and then Steve Caselli uh, and Stephen Clark will lead us uh, through the remainder of Matthew chapter 2 in the next couple of weeks, and then Alex on Christmas Eve morning uh, we'll tie everything together with uh, some uh, words to us about the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew 1 and connecting that with God's covenant uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7. And I also just remind you of our Christmas Eve worship service at 5.30 on uh, the 24th. It's a great opportunity for us as God's people to invite a friend, a neighbor, a family member who may not uh, know Christ, may be indifferent or even hostile to the Christian faith. Uh, all they can do is say no, but if we don't invite them, we don't give them an opportunity to say no. Uh, may they might say yes and come and be exposed to the message of the Christian gospel as we look at it through the whole sweep of scripture uh, in our lessons and carols. And so that's 5.30 on Sunday evening, the 24th. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 1, reading through verse 12. The text is printed for you there on page 6 of your worship folder, uh, as well as on the screens before you, or perhaps on your tablet or phone or uh, in the Bible that you brought. Hear now the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, 
they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. And Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we ask that by your spirit you would be pleased to open the eyes of our hearts that we may behold the wonders of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, your very Son, and in beholding him that we may adore him, worship him. For you alone, Lord Jesus, are worthy of our worship. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, as many of you know very well, the Bible is one big book composed of 66 uh, individual books that tell one overarching story of God's great redeeming love for his rebellious people uh, in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the central character of this great love story. Uh, the promise of the coming of God's Son is uh, foretold in the Old Testament through types and shadows, his promise of coming to redeem his rebellious people. And the fulfillment of that promise is revealed in the New Testament, beginning with the story of his birth and then his life, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, back to heaven and the promise of his return. And the rest of the New Testament explains the significance of what he came to do, its implications for our lives, how we're to live uh, until he returns. In each of the four books, the first four books of the New Testament, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those authors tell the story of Jesus from a unique perspective. Uh, John, for example, tells us that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has come that we might have life in his name. Luke uh, tells us that Jesus is the Son of Man who sympathizes with his people. Uh, Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant who gives his life as a ransom for many. And in Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus is presented as God's promised king, uh, the Messiah, the anointed one who will sit on the throne of his father, David, and rule over his people as their shepherd king. Matthew makes the case for Jesus's kingship more than any of the other gospel writers. And he begins right at the uh, forefront of Matthew chapter 1 with his genealogy, saying that he came from Abraham, showing that he was uh, in the line of the seed of God's chosen people, and then he is also David's descendant, showing that he was going to reign on the royal throne of his father David, proving that he really is God's promised messianic king. And then here at the beginning of chapter 2, Matthew is saying that since Jesus is God's promised king, we should receive him as such and respond to him in a life of worship. But as we shall see, not, not everybody responds to Jesus that way. Some respond to Jesus with hostility and indifference. But here's what God wants us to know and to take to heart from this passage this morning. Now and always, he, when he, when God reveals his son 
to us as the ultimate king of kings. The only response worthy of him is to bow our lives before him in humble, joyful, sacrificial worship. That's the main thrust of this passage and therefore the main thrust of this sermon. So the first thing I want us to note is the revelation of Jesus as king in this text. In verse 1 it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to be sending and receiving Christmas cards this month, and all of us have sent and received Christmas cards with pictures of the nativity scene on the front. And what do we find, or should, should I say, who do we find on all those pictures of the nativity scene on Christmas cards? You've got baby Jesus, and you've got Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, and who else? The wise men. And how many are there always on the Christmas cards? Three. Why is that? The three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But where in the Bible does it say there were three wise men? (laughs) It doesn't. Um, And it doesn't say that they are from the Orient, like we sing in the Christmas carol. We three kings of Orient are doesn't say they are oriental. It says they have come from the east. Um, we don't know a lot about these men. We don't know how many there were. It was probably a lot more than three because of the ruckus they caused in Jerusalem. It says that the king himself was troubled along with the whole city, all of Jerusalem with him. It was probably a large band of travelers with a great entourage and perhaps with even a military guard. Uh, We don't know exactly where they're from, except that it says they're from the east. We do know that they are called wise men, which is a translation of the Greek word magi, which was the name of an ancient Medo-Persian tribe who were advisors to kings in the Persian courts. They're mentioned in the book of Daniel, When Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, had a dream that he wanted to be interpreted and he called all of the advisors of his court together, some who were called magi, uh, to interpret this dream, but none could. And then there was this Jewish exile there named Daniel who could interpret dreams and he was brought in and did interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream and he was promoted in Nebuchadnezzar's court to be the chief magi. So these are probably high court officials uh, in the Persian Empire. And they were in all likelihood familiar with the ancient prophecies of Daniel that were given about 500 years prior to their time. And these prophecies told of a king who had come to Israel and redeem his people from their sins. But these men were not Jews. Uh, They are Gentiles. And Matthew makes it clear whom they have come to see, and why. Look at it. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship 
Now, what about this star? We saw his star when it rose. Some say the star was a comet. Uh, some say it was a combination of Saturn and Jupiter. Uh, we simply do not know. A lot of scholars spend a lot of uh, time and spill a lot of ink trying to tell us what this star was. We simply don't know. What we do know is that this star, this light, is doing something that it could not do on its own. God was using this light to guide these Gentiles from a distant land to bring them to his son that they might worship him. And this is God's great overarching purpose in all of history to guide people from among all the nations of the earth, not by a star, but by the light of his word and the preaching of the gospel to come to know his one and only son as king of kings and lord of lords and to worship him. In the Bible, not in some comet, not in a star, not in a planet, but in the Bible alone, we have the final sufficient revelation of God's son to us so that we would see that Jesus really is the promised messianic king and worship him as he so deserves and so I ask you have you seen him have the eyes of your heart been opened by the light of scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit to see Jesus to behold him as he stands forth from the pages of the Bible as the king of kings and lord of lords um, are you responding to him in a life of worship this is why God made you this is why you exist this is your ultimate purpose in life to glorify and to enjoy Jesus as your king well that's the revelation of Jesus as king um, that we are called to worship him but that's not how everybody responds sadly most people reject Jesus as their king and we see this rejection in the lives of King Herod and the lives of the Jewish religious leaders the scribes and the chief priests look at verse 3 when Herod the king heard this he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him now this reaction would not have surprised the first readers of Matthew's gospel because they knew that Herod referred to as Herod the Great, was an insecure, jealous, power-hungry, murderous thug uh, who had been appointed as king of the Jews, even though he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. He had been promoted as or appointed as king of the Jews by the Romans, um, not being a Jew himself. He was a puppet king. And when he heard the news of this rival king, who had been born, he was, as the text says, troubled. Uh, the word means agitated, stirred up with jealousy and anger and resentment and hostility. And all Jerusalem was agitated with him because they knew if Herod was mad, it was not going to go well for them. And we're going to see later uh, Stephen Clark is going to bring us a message about the great slaughter of the innocents later on in this passage where uh, Herod uh, 
accomplished his murderous plot in killing all the children who were two years of age and under to wipe out this would-be competitor king. So Herod hears this news and he's got to do something, and he does. Look at verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Did you catch that? He wants to know where who was to be born? The Christ, which means the anointed one. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. He knows, Herod knows that this is far more than a human king. He calls him the Christ. He knows this is God's Messiah, the one who would overcome all over all other rule and authority and would usher in the kingdom of God and reign forever and ever. He wants to know where he was born and the chief priests and the scribes go to the Old Testament prophet Micah and they quote chapter 5 verse 2 to Herod which says, and you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler. And then Matthew adds this phrase, who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem is the place, a small little hamlet, tiny little village about six miles south of Jerusalem. So in verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He, he wanted to know exactly what day they saw the star so that he could figure out when this child was born and then hatch his murderous plot to do away with him. When did that star appear? And then in verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. You can just feel the deceit and the hypocrisy dripping from his words. Herod has no intention of going to worship the king. Uh, he's going to wipe him out. This hatred and hostility is the natural response of every human heart to Jesus as king. Did you know that? This is your response. This is my response by nature to Jesus' kingship. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. What the scriptures tell us is that the core of every human being is an attitude that says, I'll have no one rule over me. Nobody's going to tell me what to do or how to live, especially God. Uh, this hostility toward God began in the garden when Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed his clear command not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this hostility runs throughout the Old Testament and culminates in the killing of Jesus Christ at the cross. In every one of our hearts, there's a little King Herod that reigns, that wants to reign on our 
throne, wants to rule, and is threatened when anything or anyone compromises uh, its sovereignty. Did you know that? Did you have a little Herod ruling in your heart? It's called the flesh, according to the scriptures. Jesus' claim of authority and sovereignty over us is absolute, and Herod's response to him is a mirror image of our own. Even as justified, forgiven, adopted, dearly loved children of God who have come to him in repentance and faith and trusted Jesus as our king. You love Jesus as your savior and your Lord, your king. You bow before him in worship. Um, But there is in all of us um, this residual hostility to him in our hearts and it will remain there until the day we die or until Jesus returns and ushers in his kingdom forever and ever. If you doubt whether this little Herod uh, is residing in you, just ask yourself, why is it so hard to pray? Why is it so hard to concentrate on the most beautiful, desirable, glorious person in the universe for longer than just a few minutes, maybe a few seconds? Why do, you, why do you and I, I'm going to keep saying you, 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 because this is me, me, me too. Why do you and I continue to fall into the same patterns of sinful behavior, sinful responses, sinful attitudes again and again and again after we say over and over, I will never do that again. Paul says in Romans 7, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Why? It's because of the remaining sinful flesh uh, that lives within us, this little King Herod in all of us wanting to be king. Um, Well, not only is there hostility against uh, Jesus, um, the, uh, that is the response against Jesus' hostility, but we see the rejection of him as king and the indifference of the chief priests and the scribes. Of all the people who should have been most eager to go to Bethlehem with the Magi and to see this newborn king, this newborn Messiah and worship him, it was the religious leaders of the day, the, the scribes and the and the chief priests, but they could care less. They are totally indifferent to the news that the Messiah has come six miles away from them, right under their nose. And it had happened months before. Certainly news from the shepherds had made it to Jerusalem that they had seen the newborn king. These are the theologians of their day. They knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. They knew all the prophecies of the coming uh, Messiah. But the light of God's word had never penetrated their hearts. You know, indifference is just another form of hatred. Um, And we see that in these leaders because 33 years later, their indifference to Jesus boiled over in murderous rage. 
uh, in their plot to execute him, and they succeeded in putting him on the cross. And this is a warning to all of us that simply knowing information about Jesus is not the same as knowing him as Savior and Lord and King. Saying you believe in him as your king is not the same as actually trusting and submitting to him as your king. You know, you can know many true things about Jesus and be totally indifferent to him. That's how many were then, and that's how many are today, and will be at the end of time. Jesus said, many will come to me on that final day of judgment, and they will say to me what? Lord, Lord. They will know who he is. They will, have, uh, they will have a gospel confession on their lips, but not a gospel possession in their hearts. They will know that he's the Messiah. They will know that he's the King, the Lord. And they will say, look at all the things that we've done for you. Look at the sacrifices we've made for you, Jesus. And he will say to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of evil. It's one of the most bone-chilling statements Jesus makes in all the scriptures. In John chapter 1, verse 10, it says, He, that is Jesus, the Son of God, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his very own people, Israel, and his own people did not receive him. But the glorious message of Christmas is that all who do receive him, to all who believe in his name, who turn from their hostility and indifference to him and receive him as king, he gives the right to become the children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. That's the good news of Christmas. It's the good news of the gospel. It means that you may be as indifferent to Jesus as these scribes and chief priests. You may be as hostile to him as Herod, and you deserve his everlasting wrath in hell as a result because of your rejection of him. But because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, you can receive his mercy, his forgiveness. You can experience the transforming power of his love and joy and grace. You can know him as your savior and king rather than your judge. If you will repent of your hostility and indifference to him and respond to him in worship. And that's what we see happening in the response of the Magi. Their adoration of him as king. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Notice how Matthew describes uh, the worship of these magi. 
He says, it, their worship overflowed with great joy. You see that in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They didn't just rejoice. They didn't just rejoice with joy. He says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and they hadn't even seen the child yet. They're just looking at the stars that rested over the very house where Jesus was. Their joy is simply an anticipation of seeing the one they had come all that way to worship. I remember uh, standing at the front of the church sanctuary on our wedding day almost 33 years ago, waiting for the back doors to open where Lynn would be standing there with her father uh, in all her beauty and glory. And I was standing there up front with my best man, my dad, and all my groomsmen, just waiting with anticipation, flooded with joy, just waiting for those doors to open that I might see her. Uh, That's a tiny little picture, a tiny little picture of what these magi are experiencing just at the sight of the star that indicated where Jesus was. And their worship was not only filled with joy, but it was expressed in an act of humility. Look at verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Notice that the child is mentioned first, not Mary. And that's the way it is in the whole of this chapter. Every time Mary and the child are mentioned together, Jesus is first. He always has the preeminence. And notice they didn't worship Mary They recognized the baby boy as their king and they bowed before him in humble adoration as if to say, you are great and we are small. You alone are worthy to receive honor and praise and glory as king of kings. They were putting into practice what Charles Wesley, his hymn declares, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see." Hail, the incarnate deity. Um, Their worship involved joy and humility and sacrificial giving. Look at verse 11. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These, These guys have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles from the east to Jerusalem. Think of the planning Think of the expense involved in such a journey to come and worship Jesus as their king. And their gifts that they offer him are a reflection of their sacrifice. Gold is a gift fit for a king. It was a precious metal then as it is today. And they recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah that God would send to redeem his people, and they were acknowledging his worth with these gifts of gold. The incense, frankincense, it was used in the tabernacle and temple worship. It was set apart as holy to God as it was mixed with some of the offerings that the priests made. Uh, This gift speaks of Jesus' holiness as our great high priest offering himself as 
the spotless sacrifice for our sins. And then there was myrrh, a spice used in preparing a body for burial. Being fully God and fully man, Jesus was born to die. Die for the sins of his people, and his body would be prepared for burial with spices such as myrrh. And so these magi, in offering these sacrificial gifts, are saying, Jesus, you're our king, you're our God, you're our Savior, you are worthy of our worship. Well, God wanted them to take this message of the kingship of Jesus back to their homeland so that others would bow before him and worship as they did. And when they're about to go back to Herod to tell him where the child could be found, God warned them in a dream not to return uh, to Herod to do that. And so they departed to their own country by another way. God was protecting the Magi. He was protecting his son and he was protecting his son's family as they later flee to Egypt. Let me close by saying this, that God is not seeking our gifts as if he needs anything. He's seeking you. He's seeking us. He's seeking worshipers. Know what Jesus tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4? That God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He's seeking joyful, humble, sacrificial worshipers who see and savor his son, Jesus Christ, as their redeemer and king. So I ask you, which group are you in? Are you in the Herod group, hostile towards Jesus, resentful of his claims of authority and sovereignty over your life, shaking your fist in his face saying, I'll have no one rule over me, especially you? Are you in the the group with the chief priests and the scribes indifferent to him? Yeah, you... Yeah, you, you say, I, I know Jesus died for my sins. Now, when's lunch? Yeah, I know he's the king of kings, but I, I've got other things to do. Or are you in the Magi group, bowing before him with great joy, humbled before him by his amazing grace to you, and willing to offer all that you have, even yourself, your whole life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as your gift of worship. This is the response he's looking for. It's the only one he's worthy of. And so, as the hymn says, come. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this precious message of Jesus as uh, the, the one and only King of all kings and Lord of all lords, the only Savior of sinners, worthy of worship, worthy of all that we are, all that we have. Would you work in us by your spirit, through your word, and through this precious sacrament of the Lord's Supper, 
work in us the grace that we so desperately need to bow before our King in joyful, humble, sacrificial worship. May this mark our lives individually and as families and as a church. As we prayed at the beginning, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see as these magi did in that little toddler that we may see Jesus as our king and respond to him in adoration and praise. And we ask this in his wonderful matchless name and all God's people said, amen, amen.